Hello, my name is Matt Pullman, and welcome to episode seven of Missing Words. In this episode, we sat down with writer and journalist Jessica Hopper. Over the years, Hopper's work has appeared in outlets like Spin Magazine, Pitchfork, Punk Planet, GQ, and many more. A compilation of her writing and journalism, titled The First Collection of Criticism by a Living Female Rock Critic, was released in 2015. The book showcased some of her most important work, including discussions about sexism and emo music, the Riot Girl movement, the making of Lana Del Rey, and her landmark article for The Village Voice, focusing on the heinous and criminal past of R. Kelly. Hopper's latest work is her first memoir, and it's called Night Moves. The book details her friendships and experiences living in Chicago during the early 2000s. Even though we might not have experienced these situations with her directly, her writing is incredibly relatable. You feel present with her going to see bands, riding through neighborhoods on her bike, and those mornings when you're just too tired to bring your Netflix DVDs, remember those, down to your mailbox. Resurfacing these stories was a result of going back through her previous works again, but exploring the past in a different way. A lot of the stuff that was in, um, that was sort of more or less the source material for Night Moves uh, had been combed through um, by uh, my friend Alice Morgan, who who was sort of helping me archive a lot of my work um, in the wake of and around uh, my previous book, First Collection of Criticism by a Living Female Rock Critic. And she had pulled a bunch of stuff off my blog, and some of it had uh, wound up going into my previous book. But then she said, you know, you have kind of a lot of writing that's just about, like, Chicago and living in Chicago during these times. And she's like, I, I took the liberty of, like, you know, she she helped me create kind of, like, a archive of my work. And she's like, so I just starred and, like, labeled everything that I thought was kind of really good or basically worth someone reading again. And so that was probably about 60% of the book was just sort of things that uh, Alice had already pulled together. And I was like, huh, oh, yeah, there's, like, definitely – themes and like categories that these sort of fall into and um my uh editor my my editor on my previous book Naomi Huffman uh, agreed to work with me to kind of put together a book that was about uh Chicago and and what we found was it was a lot about going out at night and um and so started putting it together but you know the book that that helped me sort of think about how it could be structured was um, Heidi Julevitz's The Folded Clock, uh, which is her book from a few years ago that's just labeled A Diary, mm-hmm. which is um, essentially, you know, a different excerpts from her, from a diary that she kept for for two years. Um, and, and none of it's sequenced. None of it has dates on it. And it, it's not arranged with much of a narrative arc per se it's sort of almost meditative in a way and right. um and and it really is is a book that's sort of about her family and work and kind of um more like the minutia how the minutia of her of her life and her creative life and her domestic life as a mom and a partner uh and a writer um just how they hold together and and it's a lot just about like these these days. And so that was definitely something that when I read that, um, it kind of I wouldn't say it gave me like a sense of permission, but it, 
maybe it gave me a little bit more of an idea of like, oh, this is this is a possible structure. Right. This is a way that things can go. It doesn't have to be a linear arc. It can be, uh, it can just be how it is. The yeah. book is, is Chicago. It's friendship. It's going out at night. It's these changing neighborhoods that we live in, the ways that we're changing the neighborhoods we live in, uh, whether we like it or not. And, uh, just sort of what it meant to be active in music in Chicago at that time and and I think also a little bit about the ways that social media and um and smartphones and things like that were starting to like we're we're right there at the moment where they where they really start to show up and not everybody has them and not everybody can (laughs) express them the effects of soaring rent pricing and gentrification are present in every city Living in a place for an extended period of time will eventually show you how a neighborhood changes and how incredibly awful it is to see people getting kicked out of places they've lived in their whole life. And while there are endless amounts of negative effects and tensions that come from that, spending enough time in one place will foster some sort of change or relationship with your environment and community. Whether that's simply voting or going to an art show, we become a part of where we live in so many ways, good and bad. There is a lot of this in Hopper's book and showcasing that relationship. Kind of maybe the the broader theme of the book is kind of about how those things what they what they how they sort of transact in right. music spaces and then also how you know uh you know most of the most of the sort of cast of characters in this book are like you know, young white artist folks, um, and and what it what is our our you know what we're transacting in these neighborhoods and in these spaces and what change are we bringing with us, um, right. and how are we altering these landscapes and how is this how is social media also altering these landscapes? But I mean, also that, I mean, that's sort of like, this whatever. I'm getting into the meta text. I mean, it's really, it's <laughs> yeah. really mostly. No, it's, yeah, totally. It's, it's, it's also a book about riding your skateboard with your friends, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's, totally. that's like the, 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 the basic of it. When I go back there, because I'm not there every day, I don't see the incremental change. I see the, the, the major shift. And so now it's, you know, the um the weird uh hipster taco bell that's supposed to look like a cafe right i'm like yeah. when did, when did this show up <laughs> i mean I, when i when i go back to these neighborhoods because they are so permanently etched in my mind as how they were written into my mind which is like you know the logan square mega mall that you know i passed a million times walking to um, house shows or to this thing or to another thing and, and things that, that are so written in the memory of these nights or passing them on bikes or passing them on skateboards and really seeing them like up close or experiencing them or going to shows in those places or, um, you know, the old gross diner that was someplace that was like the only place we could afford to eat or the place we'd go after shows for, you know, two dollar pizza at four AM. Right. You know. <laughs> that right. that that there's that that's the topography. That that sort of like ghostly topography is is of the book is is still what exists in my 
head. This book is also a way of seeing we were part of the like harbinger of of everything that came in the wake of us. You know, we were right. there were people there before us who, you know, one of my mentors told me about how in the seventies that's the building where she had her that all like the really broke artists. That was a place where you could have like your um your studio, your sculpture studio, or your whatever the place that was like, you know. That, yeah, that Wicker yeah. Park was truly divey, and that was in 1972. So it, it, it's, it, it seems like, oh, wow, this is really sped up and turned into something different. But um, I also have to be really cognizant of, like, well, it's, um, you know, I'm essentially, me and my friends are, like, part of a... a a gentrifying forest. We are the, we are, right. we are the yeah. Columbuses of these things. We didn't discover it, you know? How does the cost of living affect our relationship with these places, though? Pretty much the majority of the battle with living in a major city is being able to afford living in a major city. Cheaper rent can also mean the freedom to create or spend less time stressing about how you are going to make rent. Does cheaper rent mean more art? You know, but when I lived in this place where my rent was 250 bucks, you know, I had a lot of space in my life to do the things that I felt like I needed to do to become a writer, to become a better writer, to spend a lot of time reading and writing. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, you know, as a very young artist, I know that are moving out to L.A. or the people who are still brave enough to try <laughs> to try New York. Um, it really, how expensive those cities are and your inability to not constantly be hustling or, you know, doing corporate work, doing sex work, doing all kinds of things to to try to survive, which I mean, that's like the nature of being an artist. But I also wanted to show there's other ways. If you live in some place that's like truly affordable, and maybe that means we have to go to like essentially like recolonize Madison or Milwaukee or something like that um, in, in the future. Um, maybe that's what it takes. You know, there's certainly a lot of things that are lost and bulldozed through the course of gentrification and people, um, may, uh, cities being more expensive. But I think, um, uh, you know, it, 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 it obviously has a lot more ramifications than just like, Oh, the artists can't afford to make art. You know, there's a lot of people right. being forced out of of, yeah. of communities by by particularly white um a white artist, you know, collegiate class. Um but you know, I guess the only thing that I can really sort of speak to in this book is sort of my experience of like, hey, you know what? There's another way. Right. Exactly. And it's still totally it's still totally doable. Yeah. You can still totally do this. You just have to be someplace where you can find a cheap enough situation. But even with cheaper rents, cities can wear you down in time. Whether that's dealing with a broken MTA train, nonstop traffic and expensive gas prices, pizza rats, or just flat-out loneliness. These feelings can make you want to escape from these urban landscapes. There is always something that keeps you in a place. Some people find solace amongst their friends, or a job, or a relationship, a bar, a band, an animal, your apartment, or simply just being near things you like. And sometimes it's the spirit of a place that can keep you there too. So, you know, where all I love is kind of the spirit of Chicago. But I feel like 
Chicago consistently draws in and also raises up people who are really interested in, um, I don't want to say making work for the right reasons, but really bringing something to the table and, and gives people the space to um, invent something. Because even though it is a really big city, you know, you can you can find a lot of people to collaborate and create with and build alongside. And even though, you know, um, there's not necessarily the same spaces to do some of this in, you know, I mean, there's the, the, the nature of music is like these spaces oftentimes are like ephemeral, but that um, seems to be a place that consistently attracts and allows people to make and invent things. And in part because there's not necessarily this, this like big um, kind of like cultural ladder up, you know, right. there's not like, there's, and I'm, I'm not going to say it's like not like not tainted by like brands or like whatever. I mean, you know, we have like a house of vans and we have a Red Bull festival and we have a whatever. But it's like the stakes are definitely a little bit lower. There's less here to kind of be dangled in front of you to motivate you. And so I think it's really a space of work. And um, and to me, that's just so consistently brought so much so much great music um you know chicago's really um the poetry scene here is really incredible and thriving and inspiring and i think some of the most like incredible creative work being done in america right now is like uh chicago poetry uh and you know there's just there's always something here that i that i very much care about but also this is you know this is the city that once I really got to know it, I was like, oh, this is a city I feel at home in, you know, right. even. Yeah, and so home, home becomes home, even though, you know, it's, I now live, you know, um, a little bit more than like 10 miles outside of the city. Um, it's just, it's like reasonable. Chicago's yeah. reasonable, even though there's so many things that are corrupt and fucked up and, you know, historically and presently. Um, but it's just still, it still seems reasonable to me, you know. And maybe maybe that's, uh, maybe I'm not as gimlet-eyed as I was, you know, as, as the 29-year-old that was, you know, writing some of the things that are in that book. Hopper's relationship with Chicago is also influenced by her life growing up in Minnesota, and also spending time in LA. She found herself immersed in the music scene in LA, but in the book you get the sense that her dissatisfaction with LA influenced her love of the Midwest spirit even more. I don't know. Whenever I go to California, it just smells like a burning Barbie and like I'm just constantly afraid that it's going to drop into the fucking ocean and like <laughs> yeah. living next to Lake Michigan, you know, like what like maybe trees fall over in like a big rainstorm. Like, I don't know. There's just something really like kind of predictable <laughs> and yeah. safe about living here. And, um, and I mean, it's not safe for everybody, but I mean, like relatively speaking, you know, we don't have earthquakes. Right. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> there's, there's, some of, yeah. there's, there's some of that, that is just like, you know, 
there's parts of Chicago that are particularly grim and lethal, and there's parts of Chicago that are really um, <sighs> gnarly for how cloistered and, um, you know, historically it's like a very racially divided, super segregated city. But also, you know, you can go to all sorts of different neighborhoods and it's like a different city in each neighborhood. And um, that never, that never gets old. I think LA is a great city for hanging out, you know? Yeah. But I also feel like, I feel like, um, you know, I'm Midwestern. I like things to be a little tough. I like them to be a little rigorous. Yeah. And so yeah. the, 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 you know, LA, sort of like saps something from me when I'm there and I and I sort of um I've never written much being there. You know? Right. It's it's like it's not I like a different kind of a challenge than LA is. I think that's the simplest way to put it. Along with reminiscing about the scene and culture back then, Night Moves was written during the George W. Bush presidency. The feelings and paranoias that came along from a post 9-11 world were still somewhat new and frightening. Certain places and people were also barely surviving with the struggling economy. For some, this resulted in drug usage and excessive partying to cope. Or perhaps ease their frustrations with the fact they spent thousands and thousands of dollars on a college degree, only to work in retail. In the book, there are moments of foreshadowing too. Buildings and landmarks that were already there then that would come to mean something even more dreadful than possibly imagined in time. Yeah, I just saw this like blood, like this blood red sky, you know, being reflected off this building and someone said, oh, that's a Trump, the Trump Tower. Um, and right now the Trump Tower in another, um, in another very, uh, God, a terrible metaphor. It's like literally <laughs> um, the, the EPA, here, I think, is, um, is, is suing t- Trump Tower for pumping unfiltered sewage into the Chicago River. Oh, um, great, yeah. So, yeah, just, just that building is just nothing but metaphors. Um, you know, I mean, I think, I think there are sorts of parallels. I think during, you know, and you can kind of see a little bit of it, um, though I think maybe folks, if you're a little younger, you may not know necessarily what I'm pointing at when I'm talking about the recession. Like post 9-11, the, I don't know if everybody knows this, but it's like the places that were the hardest hit uh, job-wise were Chicago. Like our recovery was the slowest. And n- like so many people I know, and I talk about this in the book, mention this in the book, a lot of people I know were like literally working at like Forever 21, like really low level. People who had had like decent creative jobs were working um, 30 hours a week doing retail or really like really kind of basic jobs for people who were 30, 31, yeah, you know, yeah. and, um, and that you were just doing whatever you could. And, and, you know, I, at that time I was working as a freelancer, but I, I was, um, you know, my, my pay was getting halved like all the right. time. The level of anxieties did feel a little different during the Bush years. Maybe it's because we have more sources of news and information now. We just can't escape those feelings of hopelessness or stress sometimes. The reaction to these times compared to the past are pretty similar though, if not just focused in a different way. 
it's easy to fall back on addictive crutches to get through the dreadfulness of these times. There's simply a never-ending amount of things to rage about and protest about these days. If anything, though, the book is a reminder of how art and community can mobilize people. You know, yep. and so it was a very, it was a very sort of grim time. And so there's definitely like, there's points where I'm sort of pointing to the bleakness of that time here and really kind of that long tail, um, you know, 9-11, post 9-11, you know, financial crash, kind of the really long tail of those things still really lingered here. And, um, and how that kind of shows up in the book is people being, really broke, uh, working shitty jobs, people being depressed, but also kind of the holdover of, of, um, people kind of getting into like cocaine really kind of started to make an appearance post, post 9-11. I think for a lot of people, I'm just going to fuck it. Like the real, the real kind of fuck it era, the nothing matters era you know, the long tail of that is at the very beginning of the book. And it's definitely, it definitely shows up in like, you know, dance parties and warehouse parties where people are, I mean, this is also just how the Midwest parties, people are just absolutely like undone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and as, and, and, uh, as someone who doesn't, drink and someone who doesn't do drugs and hasn't in a very, very long ass time, um, put me into a place of observation of that. And so, um, and, and to, I mean, see it through my own judgment, but see it with like a, uh, a measure of clarity by virtue of just not being wasted. Um, I think that's really kind of how that Bush era really shows up, uh, you know, kind of, uh, at the, that sort of, hold over at the at the beginning of the book yeah i think you can it's kind of interesting to kind of revisit that time too because you almost see people kind of putting like this different spin on it now where it's like oh maybe it wasn't that bad and it's like no things were really really bad and like yeah a lot of it was like fuck it let's party and do this stuff because i think a lot of people felt just totally lost and you can kind of feel that way right now especially like Mm -hmm. i I don't really go to as many shows as i used to when i was younger but like Mm -hmm. When you go out, like yeah, you can kind of you can kind of feel that that vibe now, but it's like even even worse than it was. Like, yeah, I yeah. mean, I think I think the big difference was that, um, you know, back then, really, it, the main thing that like people, at least in the music scene, were sort of like could reliably protest around was stuff, you know, in the uh, Iraq War and invasion and. Um, some stuff like that because I think some of the other things, uh, you know, weren't, maybe weren't quite on our radar, even though they're happening, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. In the same way that people weren't as mobilized. Along with the stories of friendships, Night Moves at its core chronicles a time when going to shows didn't mean posting a photo on Instagram or Facebook. Google Maps didn't feel as accessible. We weren't all carrying around miniature computers in our pockets. It's honestly hard to remember that time and what it was like going to concerts without these technologies in our grasp. In time, these types of stories will probably be seen as even more archaic, but it's still refreshing to read these types of entries and remember those times when we weren't so incredibly addicted to our smartphones. We all had our distractions then, 
they weren't, they're much more, they feel much more catered to now. Um, the way that algorithms were present in our life during the stretch of the book is MySpace. Right. <laughs> friends you, you, you always, you always the tail end of friends. Makeout yeah. Club. You know, <laughs> um, I was on some listservs that I love, <laughs> and it was very thrilling to have like maybe like a late night listserv thread blow up. But right. I would be, you know, I might check my, if I felt like up for it. I might check my email when I got home from the club, right. from the show, you know. But like I wasn't, I wasn't out someplace tending to that. Yeah, and so and so. I mean, I know not to like belabor like, and we did things in person, and some people didn't even have phones, you know. So no, it's true. Yeah. Um, but that I think I think there's still um plenty of ways for us to check the fuck out from our like responsibility to each other and to the world. Um, much in the same way as we did in the Bush era. I also don't think there was quite the same level of like access to information or being flooded with information or being I think the world was overwhelming but um in a way that felt a little bit a little bit more metered um and I think some of that is definitely reflected in like the the pace of the book and how things unfold in the book Thank you for listening to episode seven of Missing Words. I want to send a big, big thank you to Jessica Hopper for taking the time to speak with us for the show. I've been a huge fan of her work for quite some time, so it was truly a pleasure to speak with her. Jessica's book, Night Moves, is available now, so be sure to stop by your favorite local bookstore to pick it up. While you're there, be sure to pick up her other book, the first collection of criticism by a living female rock critic as well. You can keep up with her latest engagements, news, and writings over at her site, jessicahopper.org. Thank you so much to Justin Conway for providing the music for this episode, and thanks as always to Bill Schultz for producing. And now for the usual housekeeping. It would mean so much to us if you could please subscribe to the podcast through whatever platform you use and leave comments and a rating if you can. We appreciate all the support you have shown us so far. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with episode 8 of Missing Words featuring Mayor Ted Terry of Queer Eye Family.